Welcome to the Truth In My Days podcast, where we defend the Word of God against the challenges of men. Hi, I'm Kara, and welcome back to another episode of the Truth In My Days apologetics podcast with John Torse. Today, we'll be discussing the topic of atheism. Now, atheism has been rather high profile in our society for a while now. We have names like Richard Dawkins, the former professor for public understanding of science at Oxford, the author of The God Delusion, the book, in 2006. And in that same year, philosopher and neuroscientist Sam Harris published Letter to a Christian Nation, a follow-up to his earlier book, The End of Faith, while Daniel Dennett published Breaking the Spell, Religion as a Natural Phenomenon. A year later came Christopher Hitchens' book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything, and Dennett's The Portable Atheist. Now, these four fellows came to be known as the Four Horsemen of the New Atheism, which became quite high-profile and remains so today. Magazines promoting atheism can be found regularly on the newsstands. Skeptical Inquirer, American Atheist, Skeptic, Free Inquiry, and so on. And you hear a triumphalist tone from these, as if atheism is spreading and will continue to do so, and belief in God is doomed to die out sooner or later. How, as apologists, can we answer that? I think what we have to do first is to define our terms. What are we talking about when we say atheism? Originally, atheism was the view that there is no God, and there was a related term, agnosticism. An agnostic was one who held that it is not possible to know whether there is a God or not. Uh, Today, those definitions have blurred somewhat. Today, when someone says he's an atheist, he means he does not believe there's a God. Some of them will say that, look, I haven't seen evidence for God. Uh, If I see evidence, I may change my mind. Uh, But they simply say, I don't believe there's a God. An agnostic is one who says, I'm not sure whether there's a God or not. Uh, Those are the two main terms. There's a third one, just functional atheist. And a functional atheist is one who doesn't have a position on whether there's a God or not, maybe hasn't bothered to think about it, but he lives as if there is no God. Now, I've heard of atheists who object to the characterization of atheism as a belief system. They say it is about not a belief, but a lack of belief, not believing there is a God. They say calling atheism a belief is like calling not collecting stamps a hobby. How would you respond to that? Well, that may sound reasonable on the surface, but when we examine it, it really isn't. Why not? The fact is that we exist, we live in a world that exists, and we have to account for these things. If it was not God who created the world and who created life in it, Then what? Where did these things come from? So those who reject the idea of God have to believe in some other explanation. Uh, They might believe that it's simply an illusion. They might deny existence, but that's not something that could be proven. And so it would be a belief. Uh, Many of them then would believe in natural processes as the explanation for the life uh, and the world in which life is found. But atheists do believe in natural processes, though they say this is not a belief, but rather accepting facts discovered by science. Exactly. That is the linchpin to this issue. And here's where apologetics have to start in many cases today. It was not that way in Bible times. Uh, Psalm 14, Psalm 53 both start out saying the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So atheists did exist, always have existed, but it wasn't a common view at all. Uh, The issue then was not whether there's a God or not, but which God is the true God. By the time we reach New Testament uh, times, there's no actual evidence that there were any atheists who denied the existence of God. There were functional atheists, uh, 
groups of uh, philosophers, the skeptics, the Epicureans, for example, they lived as if there is no God. The Epicureans said that, look, if there's a God, he's not interested in the affairs of men. And uh, it was not really until the Enlightenment era that atheism became a thing. Uh, by this time, life in the Western world had, had improved dramatically and materially. And a group of philosophers, intelligentsia, the rationalists, first began to say there is no God. Man is the measure of all things and try to promote those ideas actually led to the uh, founding of the first official atheist state, which was Re revolutionary France in 1789. Still, the idea that there was no God did have a lot of trouble getting traction. Why? Well, for the reason I mentioned before, we exist, the world exists, and that needs to have an explanation. There was no explanation other than God. Now, what became popular at that time was deism. Deism was the idea that, yeah, there must have been a God who created things, but then he essentially left town. He wasn't interested. He went away. And so now the world is left to its natural processes and man becomes the measure of all things. Uh, but they still needed a creator, at least to start process. And that was a bulwark against atheism. Did that change? If so, how and why? There's a very interesting quote from a professor, Edward J. Larson, then of the University of Georgia. Uh, he was a Pulitzer Prize winning author and perhaps the world's leading expert on the history of the theory of evolution. And in his lecture series, The Theory of Evolution, A History of Controversy, he says this, During the Enlightenment, during, say, the 1700s, notions of evolution began creeping back in, that is, creation by natural law. If a people are intent in pushing out God or rejecting divine causation, really the only alternative is where species, well, they could be eternal, as Aristotle said, or they had to come from other species. Where else could they come from? So you see, as, as Larson says, if a people are intent in pushing out God, they needed an alternate explanation. They needed someone to explain the existence of the world and the existence of people in it. And this is why, as he says, notions of evolution began creeping back in. It's important to note, therefore, that evolution was never about science. It was always about getting rid of God. The conclusion came first. And this idea, evolutionary ideas, were pushed for quite a long time by quite a number of different people. Uh, Montesquieu, the uh, Comte de Buffon, Denis Diderot, Erasmus Darwin, Charles's grandfather in the 18th century, uh, Lamarck and Laplace in the 19th century. It's interesting that these people put forth ideas like natural selection, uh, universal common ancestor. It's interesting that by the time we get to Charles Darwin's book, there was nothing original in it. Everything in his book had been proposed by earlier uh, writers, but they didn't get accepted. Why not? Well, they put forth ideas, but they didn't give proof for them. And it's interesting that when Darwin did publish his book, Origin of Species, in 1859, there was nothing new in it. He didn't offer proof for his ideas, and they were previously rejected. So why were they accepted now? And the answer is because the, the opinion makers of society, the intelligentsia, were ready to push God out. They needed a pretext to do it. They needed an explanation for the origin of the world and the life in it. And here it was. So does that mean that the theory of evolution is necessary for atheism? Uh, pretty much so. As we said, we would need an explanation. And if it's not God, it has to be naturalistic explanations. And evolution does not cover just what's called organic evolution, which is what people think of, how simple life forms through the ages become more and more complex life forms, uh, developing into reptiles and birds and mammals and so on. That's organic evolution. 
uh, for a full-orbed atheistic worldview, you also need chemical evolution, which is the stage at which simple chemicals have to spontaneously come together to form the structure of that first original cell. And even before that, you need cosmic evolution. And that is an explanation for where the uh, stars, the planets, the galaxies, uh, the components of the universe came about. And all three of these are part and underlying necessity for the atheistic worldview. Uh, there's only one way, in fact, that you could have atheism without the theory of evolution, and that's to come up with another naturalistic explanation. But so far, there isn't any. Evolution is the only game in town for atheists. But doesn't that actually give the atheist the upper hand? He would say that his worldview is based on facts, facts discovered by science, while our worldview is based on faith. Does it? Does it really give them the upper hand? It is actually this question that you've raised that becomes the heart of our apologetic. And we find that science and logic prove conclusively and clearly that God exists. And here's how. Follow step number one. The world and the life in it exist and endure in time. And that's not controversial. But to endure in time means that we're moving forward in a time stream, so to speak. Uh, today is now. It's here. Yesterday is gone. There's no way to go back to it. Tomorrow is not here yet. We have to wait for it to come. When it comes, the tomorrow becomes today. And this moment in time now is gone. In the past, we cannot get back to it. So we're continuously moving forward through time. And that's what it means to endure in time. And the world does endure in time. Second point then, uh, existence from eternity past is impossible. There's someone who would say, well, the, the universe has just always been here, but that's impossible for any entity that endures in time, because in that case, it would be impossible to move through infinite time past to reach any specific point, such as the year 2021, yet here we are. Wait a minute. Why would it be impossible? Think of it this way. Uh, you have an infinite staircase and you have to climb halfway up the infinite staircase. How long would it take you to get halfway up the staircase? You, you couldn't. You'd never get there. What about if we say one third of the way up? You still couldn't. Yeah, you can't reach any specific point if you have to move through infinite steps before you could get to a specific step. In the same way. If you have to move through infinite time, you can never reach any specific point anymore than you could reach a specific step on an infinite staircase. But that means that the universe cannot have existed from time past. Another point as well why the universe cannot have just always been here is that the universe is heading towards heat death. Okay, you have to explain that. Heat death of the universe. Uh, Basically, as scientists uh, have found, all of the usable energy in the universe is dissipating. We are moving slowly, very slowly, toward a state where all the temperature everywhere will be exactly equal, complete equalization. And when that happens, all life, all chemical processes will cease. They cannot happen anymore. Scientists call that heat death. Now, if the world had been around for an infinite time in the past, we would have long ago reached heat death and there would be no functioning process of any sort in the universe, let alone living creatures. And yet here we are. Okay? So let's get that straight. The world and the life in it exist and endure in time, cannot have been here from eternity past. And since existence from eternity past is impossible, both logically and scientifically, the world and the life in it must have come into being at some point in time. Okay, clear so far? I got it. So in that case, then the next step is this. The universe, the world, the life in it was either created or not created. 
there is no other option. This is what we call the law of the excluded middle. Could you explain that, please? The law of the excluded middle is an axiom of logic. And basically, it says that, that any proposition and its negation cover all possibilities. If we say, for example, the ball is either red or blue, that doesn't cover all possibilities. The ball could be green, it could be yellow. But if we say the ball is either blue or not blue, that covers every possibility. If it's green, then it's in the not blue category. If it's yellow, it's in the not blue category. If it's red, it's in the not blue category. So a proposition, the ball is blue, and its negation or not blue covers every conceivable option. So if we say the universe was created or not created, that covers every possible uh, explanation. So if they were created, if that option is true, they must have been created by an immensely powerful and intelligent entity that transcends time. If he's in the time stream himself, would be part of creation and could not create. So an immensely powerful and intelligent entity that transcends time, that is God. Uh, on the flip side, if the not created option were true, then the world and the life in it must have come about by naturalistic processes. Matter had to have come out of nothing. Matter must have formed from randomly spread out atoms into complex structures, such as stars and planets organized into solar systems and galaxies. On Earth, Simple chemicals had to spontaneously self-assemble, come together into complex, ordered macromolecules, and then those come together into a cell structure. And then this cell must have come to life, must have passed from non-living to living. And all of these steps are absolutely necessary for a naturalistic model of origins. Yes, that, that makes sense. The next point to note is that known laws of science show these steps to be impossible and therefore not created is not possible. And what laws of science might this be? Well, we have the first law of thermodynamics. Uh, first law of thermodynamics uh, says that matter, energy, cannot be created or destroyed by any natural process but only change from one form into another. Well, if matter energy cannot be created by any natural process, and yet here is a world made of matter, where did that matter come from? Cannot have been here uh, from eternity past. And according to science, it cannot have just come into being, cannot have been created by any natural process. What else? Well, there's also the second law of thermodynamics. Uh, the second law of thermodynamics is the considered actually to be the most fundamental law of science and you're all familiar with it, even if you don't realize it. What it says is that all natural processes tend towards disorder, towards breaking down, towards falling apart. Things don't spontaneously organize themselves and become more complex. Consider, for example, a house out in the middle of a field, a house made of nice uh, logs and, and windows and tiles on the roof. If you leave that house alone long enough, What's eventually going to happen to it? It will fall apart, I guess. Yeah, it'll decay into a pile of, of rubble. Now, let me ask you, if you have a start with a pile of rubble, how long do you have to leave it there before it will, by itself, assemble into that house? Well, it, it would never do that. It, would, it, it wouldn't just turn back into a house. It would still be rubble. I cannot. You know your car. Why do you have to buy a new car every few years? Because your car eventually breaks down, falls apart. 
why do people get older and eventually their systems break down? They don't become younger. These are universal applications of this fact that everywhere in the universe, the driving force is towards disorder, order passing into disorder, not the other way around. And as I said, everybody realizes that, even if they don't know that that's the second law of thermodynamics. Wait, but... I've got a question. Uh, don't atheists say that the second law of thermodynamics only applies to closed systems, so it doesn't apply here? I'm actually not sure what they mean by that, but I've heard it. Sure. Uh, you will hear that a lot. When, when this is pointed out, the problem for the second law of thermodynamics for evolution at a cosmic uh, level is that if you get a big bang and it's throwing out subatomic particles, atoms, protons, neutrons, haphazardly in all directions... How do they ever self-assemble into stars and planets? They wouldn't. And when you get to Earth, if you get simple chemicals in the water, how do these simple chemicals self-assemble into these complex cell structures? Well, they can't. And so the evolutionist, the atheist, has a big problem here with the second law of thermodynamics. The usual dodge you will hear is that the Earth is a closed system. And what they mean by that is that it cannot exchange matter or energy outside its own boundaries. Uh, technically, that's an isolated system, not a closed system, and that's what they should be saying. And so they say the Earth is not, in fact, a closed system, and therefore the second law doesn't apply. They say that the sun is continuously inputting energy into the Earth, and that energy can be used to build structures. And that's wrong? Uh, yes, it's wrong. Okay, first, let's note that when we're talking about cosmic evolution, the universe is a closed system. There's nowhere else outside the universe to exchange matter and energy. Uh, so certainly the second law would apply at that level. Secondly, it's in fact not true that the second law only applies to closed systems. It applies to all natural processes. All you have to do is account for the effects of energy and inputting free energy into a system, as the sun does to the earth, makes disorder happen faster. It doesn't reverse it. Think again of that house in the field. If it's in bright sun, what's going to happen? Well, it's going to fall apart faster. You can put shine the sun all you want on a pile of, of rubble. It's never going to turn into a house. A good example would be an explosion. An explosion is a sudden release of free energy. Does an explosion build things or does it destroy things? It creates maximum disorder. So, the objection is false. The second law of thermodynamics is a fatal problem for any kind of theory of cosmic or chemical evolution. Thank you, John. That, that really makes a lot of sense. Um, are there any other laws of science that contradict evolution? There's the law of biogenesis discovered by Louis Pasteur in 1864, where he found that only life gives rise to life. Life never comes from non-living matter. Uh, before Pasteur, it used to be thought that life just was generated spontaneously. But what Pasteur found through careful scientific examination is this is not the case. Only to get life, you need to have life already there. Uh, so here's another problem then for evolution. Even if you ignore the second law of thermodynamics, and we say, sure, those chemicals could get together and form macromolecules and form a cell structure, if they could do that, it still couldn't come to life. <laughs> that really seems to demolish any sort of naturalistic model of origins. Well, yes, it does. Uh, atheists here try desperately to say that the law of biogenesis only applies to the spontaneous generation of maggots in meat, uh, which is what Pasteur worked on. But that's like saying that the law of gravity only applies to apples falling from trees. 
The law of, law of biogenesis, in fact, has been fully established by the scientific method, and it stands life can only come from living matter, so it can never have developed by any naturalistic means. Ah, I see. So, where does all this take us to? Well, here it is in summary. Okay? The world is here. Life in the world is here. These must have been created or not created. If they were not created, they must have come about by naturalistic processes. Since known laws of science preclude the necessary steps for the world and the life in it to have come about by natural processes, the not created option is an impossibility. And so by the law of the excluded middle, the world and the life in it must have been created by God. Therefore, there must be a God and his existence is thus proven. Very cool. Really, it is. Um, so this is the apologetics approach you take with an atheist? Uh, yes, I would. Uh, the logic is inescapable. Uh, you'd have to, of course, look at the response. Uh, if if the, the atheist is one of those who says evidence would convince me, if he shows interest in knowing the truth, then I think this could be an effective means. Uh, in fact, the Bible itself talks about what's called natural revelation, which we'll talk about in another program, how the existence of creation is enough to show that there's God, either accept it or you suppress it. Uh, but the logic and the science is inescapable to the fair-minded. This is absolute proof that God exists. How would atheists respond, do you think? Well, I hope they would do it by thinking seriously. Uh, they may not. As I said, the, how they respond will reveal their heart, uh, whether they're interested in knowing it or not, uh, whether they're functional atheists or not, they, those might respond better as opposed to committed atheists, but you just have to try and see. Uh, they might uh, try to forestall this by bringing up other challenges, such as the uh, the problem of pain. Why do bad things happen if there's a loving God? That's another issue we'll get to in another program. But here's what we have to say at this point. The existence of evil does not allow us to ignore the reality that logic and the facts, the laws discovered by science, prove that God does exist. So does this mean that atheism will not take over and 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 belief in God is, is not doomed to die? Uh, these new atheists are really just looking at the Western world, and the Western world world is not the entire world. Uh, worldwide, the overwhelming majority of people do believe in God. Uh, even in the West, where there's a lot of hand-wringing about the fact that uh, the numbers of people identifying themselves as Christian, the number of people going to church is falling, and it is. Even here, according to the last numbers I saw, the people who self-identify as atheists are a minuscule 2% of the population, and it doesn't seem to be growing. So no, I don't think atheism will win uh, the evidence against it is really just too strong. Well, that's great. Thanks for thanks for clearing that up. Uh, my final question is, where does the apologist go from here? Uh, proving the existence of God is the necessary first step these days to a lot of people. As I said before, in times past, there really wasn't nobody doubted that God existed. Uh, but sometimes we do have to do that these days in our society. But this is just a lead-in then to the second step, which is equally crucial and that's to answer the question of which God? There's so many contenders for that title, so many different uh, people worshiping so many different gods, believing their God is true. The question then is, in the light of all this competition, can the true God prove himself? Can the true God show that he is the true God over and against all these other contenders? I believe he can. And that, again, is the job of the apologist. And that is what we'll look at in subsequent programs. All right. Thank you. Thank you for this uh, episode on the Apologetics Podcast for Truth in My Days. Thank you, John Torres, for a very interesting, very detailed explanation uh, in our discussion of atheism. Thank you. You're very welcome. 
If you enjoy our content and think this is important material, the best compliment you can pay is by sharing this with your friends and family. This helps us out a lot. Also, if you enjoyed today's program, please like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. Thank you for listening to the Truth In My Days podcast with John Torse. We would love to hear from you. Please feel free to share any questions or comments you may have. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, MeWe, and YouTube. Simply search Truth In My Days as one word. Again, Truth In My Days as one word, no spaces in between. And you can connect with us. You may also visit our website for more comprehensive material and to learn more about our ministry. Our website is truthinmydays.com. Thank you.